Section 4 of The Spell of the Hawaiian Islands and the Philippines by Isabel Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. The Spell of the Hawaiian Islands and the Philippines by Isabel Anderson. Section 4. Chapter 3. The Five Kamehamehas. Part 1. Hawaiian myths and traditions are confused and unreliable, and we know little real history of the bright land, the land of rainbows, before the coming of Captain Cook in 1778. We do know, however, that in those early days the different tribes continually carried on a savage warfare among themselves. Not until the latter part of the 18th century did there arise a native chieftain powerful enough to subdue all the islands under his sway and bring peace among the warring tribes. This chief was Kamehameha I, or Kamehameha the Great, often called the Napoleon of the Pacific. The authentic history of Hawaii really begins with his reign. His portrait in the executive building in Honolulu shows him as a stern warrior. The Japanese, as well as the Spaniards, had long known of the existence of islands in that part of the Pacific Ocean. Tradition tells of some shipwrecked Spanish sailors and some Japanese who settled there at a very early date. These islands were, however, brought to the notice of the civilized world for the first time by Captain Cook. The Englishmen were received by the simple natives with awe and wonder. Captain Cook himself was declared by the priests to be an incarnation of Lono, god of the forest and husband of the goddess Laka, and abundant provisions were brought to the ship as an offering to this deity. Had the natives been even decently treated, there would have been no tragic sequel to the story, but Cook's crew were allowed complete and unrestrained license on shore. As it was, there was no serious trouble during their first visit, but when they returned in a few months and again exacted contributions, the supplies were given grudgingly. The English vessel sailed away, but was unfortunately obliged to put back for repairs, and it was then that the fight occurred between the foreigners and the natives in which Captain Cook met his death. It was this famous voyager who gave the name of Sandwich Islands to the group in honor of his patron, Lord Sandwich. They were known by that name for many years, but it was never the official designation and is now seldom used. The discovery of the islands by Englishmen and Americans was fraught with evil consequences to the natives, as they brought with them new diseases, and they also introduced intoxicating liquors, and it soon became the custom for whaling vessels in the Pacific to call there and make them the scene of debauchery and licentiousness. It has been said that at that time sea captains recognized no laws, either of God or man, west of Cape Horn. We must not fail to note, however, that even in those early days there were a few white men who really sought the good of the Hawaiians. Isaac Davis and John Young were two of these men. When the crew of an American vessel was massacred, these two were spared, and they continued to live in the islands until their death. They were a bright contrast to most seamen who visited Hawaii at that period. They accepted the responsibility imposed by their training in civilization, exerting a great influence for good, and were even advisers and teachers of King Kamehameha I. Captain George Vancouver, who visited the islands three times in the last decade of the 18th century, under commission from the British government, was another white man whose work there was wholly good. 
He landed the first sheep and cattle ever seen there, and induced the king to proclaim them taboo for ten years so that they might have time to increase, after which women were to be allowed to eat them as well as men. He introduced some valuable plants, such as the grapevine, the orange, and the almond, and brought the people seeds of garden vegetables. He refused them firearms. Under his direction, the first sailing vessel was built there, and called the Britannia. Vancouver so won over the natives by his kind treatment that the chiefs ceded the islands to Great Britain and raised the British flag in February 1794. He left them with a promise to come again and bring them teachers of Christianity and the industries of civilization. His death, however, prevented his return, and Great Britain never took formal possession. Kamehameha I, who, at the time of Cook's arrival, was only a chief on the island of Hawaii, joined in the tribal wars, conquered the other chiefs of that island, and became king. While this conquest was in progress, an eruption of Kilauea destroyed a large part of the opposing army and convinced Kamehameha that Pele was on his side. The subjugation of Maui and Oahu followed. At the great battle fought in the Nuuanu Valley, the king of Oahu was defeated and driven with his army over the Pali. Kamehameha was twice prevented from invading Kauai, but some years later it was ceded to him by its ruler. After the conquest of Oahu was completed in 1795, it was Kamehameha's work to build up a strong central government. According to the feudal system that had existed in the islands up to that time, all the land was considered to belong to the king, who divided it among the great chiefs, these in turn apportioning their shares among the lesser chiefs of whom the people held their small plots of ground. All paid tribute to those above them in rank. Kamehameha I, in order to increase his own power and destroy that of the chiefs, distributed their lands to them in widely separated portions rather than in large continuous tracts, as had been the custom previously. Kamehameha was elected by the chiefs as king of all the Hawaiian islands and founded the dynasty called by his name, under which his people had peace for nearly eighty years. He adroitly used the taboo to strengthen his power, and, availing himself of the wise advice of the few benevolent foreigners whom he knew, he sought in every way to further the best interests of his people. He has been called one of the notable men of the earth. The bronze statue of Kamehameha I stands in front of the Judiciary Building in Honolulu. The anniversary of the birthday of the great ruler occurs in June, and is celebrated by the natives far and near. His statue is dressed in his royal cape of bird feathers and decorated with lays of flowers by the sons and daughters of Hawaii. The strength of character of Kamehameha I is shown in many ways, but especially in the stand he took in regard to liquor, which was having a disastrous effect on his people. When he became convinced that alcoholic drinks were injurious, he decided never to taste them again. Before the close of his life, he made a noble effort to prevent the use of liquor by his people. All the chiefs on the island of Hawaii were summoned to meet in an immense grass house, which he had ordered built at Kailua, the ancient capital, solely for this council. When they were all assembled, the king entered in his magnificent cape of mamo bird feathers, and, drawing himself up to his full height, uttered this command, Return to your homes, and destroy every distillery on the island. Make no more intoxicating liquors. 
At the death of Kamehameha I in 1819, his son Liholiho succeeded him as Kamehameha II. Unfortunately, he did not carry out his father's wishes. He was like his father in nothing but name, being weak and dissipated, and easily influenced by the unscrupulous foreigners who surrounded him. Many changes took place in his reign, but so strong had the government been made by his father that it survived them all. Fortunately, too, an able woman, one of the wives of the first Kamehameha, was associated with the king as queen regent. Before the end of the year 1819, the Hawaiians had burned their idols and abolished taboo. It was the influence of Europeans that had led to these radical changes. Early in the 19th century, the trade in sandalwood sprang up, in return for which many manufactured articles were imported, especially rum, firearms, and cheap ornaments. This trade brought increased number of foreigners to the islands, and their sneers undermined the faith of the people in their old gods without offering them any other religion as a substitute. In this connection, we are told that twice Kamehameha I made an effort to learn something about Christianity. When he heard that the people of Tahiti had embraced the new faith, he inquired of a foreigner about it, but the man could tell him nothing. Again, just before his death, he asked an American trader to tell him about the white man's God, but, as a native afterward reported to the missionaries, he no tell him. The greatest of the Hawaiians prepared the way, but he himself died without hearing of Christ. The Hawaiians had now swept their house clean, and they were ready for an entirely new set of furnishings. In a land far away, beyond the Pacific, these were preparing for them, and the short reign of the second Kamehameha was made memorable not only by the changes already mentioned, but also by the coming of the missionaries in 1820. Obuukia, whose real name was Opukahaia, was a young Hawaiian who shipped as seaman on a whaler about 1817 and was taken to New Haven, where he found people who befriended him and undertook to give him an education. They sent him to the foreign mission school, which had been established at Cornwall, Connecticut, for young men from heathen lands. Among his mates were four others from his native islands. It had been his purpose to carry the Christian religion to his home, but he was taken seriously ill at the school, and on his deathbed he pleaded with his new friends not to forget his country. His appeal led the first missionaries to embark for those faraway shores. Three young Hawaiians from the school went with them as assistants. When the Christian teachers arrived, it is said that the captain of the ship sent an officer ashore with the Hawaiian boys. After a while, they returned, shouting out their wonderful news. Liho, Liho is king. The taboos are abolished. The idols are burnt. There has been war. Now there is peace. The missionaries received a cordial welcome from some of the natives of high station. The former high priest met them with the words, I knew that the wooden images of gods carved by our own hands could not supply our wants, but I worshipped them because it was a custom of our fathers. My thought has always been there is only one great god dwelling in the heavens. The chief Kalaimoku, neatly dressed in foreign clothes, boarded the ship, accompanied by the two queen dowagers, and welcomed each of the newcomers in turn with a warm handclasp. One of the queens asked the American women to make her a white dress while they were sailing along the coast to wear on meeting the king. When she went ashore in her new white mother Hubbard, a shout greeted her from hundreds of throats. 
Because the gown was so loose that she could both run and stand in it, the natives called it a holoku, meaning run-stand. It became the national dress. The queens afterwards sent the missionaries sugar-cane, bananas, coconuts, and other foods as a token of their pleasure. The Americans were received kindly by the king after explaining their mission and were allowed to remain in the islands. They had many trials and privations, but they were strong in their faith, and within twenty years they had the joy of baptizing thousands of converts. Kamehameha II, fearing the Russians, one trader had actually gone so far as to hoist the Russian flag over some forts that he had built, visited the United States with his queen, and then went on to England to ask for protection, which was promised them by George IV. They both died there in 1824, and their remains were sent home in a British man-of-war, commanded by Lord Byron, cousin of the poet. When Kamehameha III was made ruler, all the unprincipled white men in Oahu immediately set to work to lead him into every form of dissipation, but they were not to succeed with him as they had with his predecessor. There were men of ability in that band of missionaries, and they had great influence with him. These faithful advisers had a large share in framing the liberal constitution which he granted. It is of special interest to note that the year before the constitution was adopted, a bill of rights was promulgated which set forth the fundamental principles of government and is often called the Hawaiian Magna Carta. An eminent writer has given us the provisions of this document. It asserts the right of every man to life limb, liberty, freedom from oppression, the earnings of his hand, and the production of his mind, not, however, to those who act in violation of the laws. It gave natives for the first time the right to hold land in fee simple. Before that, the king yet owned all the land, and no one could buy it. In this document, it is also declared that protection is hereby secured in the persons of all the people, together with their lands, their building lots, and all their property, while they conform to the laws of the kingdom, and that laws must be enacted for the protection of subjects as well as rulers. A commission was also formed to determine the ownership of the land. By this commission, one-third of all the land was confirmed to the king one-third to the chiefs, and one-third to the common people. As far as possible, the people's share was so divided that each person received the piece of ground that he was living on. The king and many of the chiefs turned over one-half of their share to the government, which soon held nearly one-third of all the landed property in the kingdom. The first constitution was framed in 1840. About ten years later, an improved one was adopted. The legislature was to meet in two houses. The nobles were to be chosen by the king for life, and were not to be more than thirty in number. There were to be not less than twenty-four representatives, who were to be elected by the people. The Supreme Court was to be composed of three members, a chief justice and two associate justices. Four circuit courts were to be established, and besides the judges for these, each district was to have a judge who should settle petty cases. It was in 1825, early in the reign of Kamehameha III, that Kapiolani, daughter of the high chief Kiowe Mahuhili of Hilo, defied the power of Pele. Having become a Christian, she determined to give her people an object lesson on the powerlessness of their gods. With a retinue of 80 persons, she journeyed most of the way on foot, 100 miles to the crater of Kilauea. When near the crater, she was met by the priestess of Pele, who threatened her with death if she broke the taboos. 
but Capiolani ate the sacred ohilo berries without first offering some to the goddess, and, undaunted, made her way with her followers down five hundred feet to the black ledge. There, on the very margin of the fiery lake of Hale Maumau, she addressed her followers in these ringing words. Jehovah is my God. He kindled these fires. I fear not Pele. If I perish by the anger of Pele, then you may fear the power of Pele. But if I trust in Jehovah, and he should save me from the wrath of Pele, then you must fear and serve the Lord Jehovah. All the gods of Hawaii are vain. Then they sang a hymn of praise to Jehovah, and wended their way back to the crater's rim in safety. It was during the reign of Kamehameha III that the United States, France, and Great Britain recognized the independence of the Hawaiian Islands. Before this news reached the Pacific, however, Lord George Paulette, a British naval officer, took possession and hoisted the British flag because the king refused to yield to his demands. Five months later, Admiral Thomas, in command of Great Britain's fleet in the east, appeared at Honolulu and restored the country to the natives. In recognition, an attractive public park was named for him. At the Thanksgiving service held on that day, the king uttered the words which were afterward adopted as the motto of the nation the translation of which is in righteousness is the life of the land the independence of hawaii was only once again threatened by a foreign power when a french admiral took possession of the fort and the government buildings at honolulu for a few days indeed that independence was not only recognized but guaranteed by france england and the united states many of the missionaries settled in hawaii and their descendants have become rich and prominent citizens Hawaii owes much to them. So far as lay in their power, they taught the people trades and introduced New England ideals of government and education. Two years after they arrived, a spelling book was printed, and a few years later, the printing office sent out a newspaper in the native language. The first boarding school for boys was started by Lauren Andrews in 1831 on Maui, and it was not long after that one was established for girls. The Hilo Boarding School, which came later, was the one that General Armstrong took many suggestions from for his work for the colored people, at Hampton Institute in Virginia. Indeed, so eager were the Hawaiians to learn of their new teachers that whole villages came to the mission stations, gray-haired men and women becoming pupils, and the chiefs leading the way. End of Section 4 Recording by William Tomko